praise and to laud the fact that our God's word endures, that heaven and earth will pass away, the grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so, Lord, we pray, encourage us today, Lord, that we have such a sure foundation that your word, as Jesus himself declared, your scripture cannot be broken. And so, Father, we thank you that we have this treasure that has been deposited for us in a book, your inspired word, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us now as we look at the doctrine of the church, as we continue to study our uh, uh, the doctrine of ecclesiology here in our Sunday school hour, we pray that you would give us minds to understand, hearts to obey what your word declares, Lord. We pray that you would help us, Lord, in our church to honor the head of the church, Christ, the King, Lord, the, the shepherd of the flock, Lord. We pray that you would help us to uh, see the church as he sees the church, that we would recognize the church as he recognizes the church, Lord, and that we would lay down our lives for the church even as he would lay down his life for the church. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good, everybody. Uh, we are uh, transitioning now to a new subject here in our study of ecclesiology dealing with church membership. And so um, uh, if you are a member of our church, then you know experientially a little bit about this doctrine. If you are praying about becoming a member of our church, what an opportunity for you to be here during a time in which we are going to talk about what church membership means, uh, why it matters, how does it work, uh, all those sorts of things. And so I thought I'd start us out with a, a scripture, a proof text, something of a proof text at least, uh, that talks about the doctrine of church membership. And that is uh, uh, this passage here out of 1 Corinthians that identifies the church as the body of Christ and then identifies uh, the people participating in the church as members of that body. And so now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And so right away, just to qualify, there is an analogy between what we could say is the universal church, the mystical church, the spiritual church, the invisible church, the universal church. In other words, the church that is comprised of all of God's elect children throughout all of time to the local church. Uh, and when I say it, there's an analogy, meaning that what is true in the ultimate salvific redemptive level, the spiritual level of the true invisible elect church of God, that uh, much of that is to be carried over into the visible church, though it's not a perfect analogy. No, not yet, because there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. You can identify with the visible church and not be elect. I mean, you can identify with the visible church and not be saved, in other words. And so we have that every Sunday here at church, unless you can demonstrate to me that all of your infants and children are saved. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean, every church and then visitors and people and, and, and just who knows, maybe you are uh, a member of the church even, maybe you've even gone through the membership process, but you are not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, that can happen, that happens multiple occasions, people uh, either are deceived about their conversion, and this is taking us in a different direction, but I just want to emphasize how that right now the church, 
the visible church, there's not a one-to-one correspondence with the invisible church, okay, for various reasons. But, uh, uh, but uh, as it stands, when it comes to the membership of the church, what are we going to look at? I, I want to bring up these points. Remember, we're studying practical ecclesiology, and so even in preparing for this, Uh, I have had to resist the temptation to slip into more of a systematic representation or systematic study of ecclesiology and deal with things that are of a more practical nature. And so um, uh, the questions we're asking today is something like, in terms of what church membership is, we can ask the question, is church membership optional? Uh, the pastor, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the pastoral dimensions of church mem- membership because I think sometimes that, doesn't, that goes neglected. We don't really focus on that point, uh, and I'll kind of try to elucidate what I mean by that. But also, who should be a member of a church? Uh, that's a very important question. Uh, also, what is required in church membership? What is required of you in church membership? I don't think we'll get that far. And then finally, how do you terminate church membership? biblically what's the biblical way to terminate your church membership you know it's kind of like you know if you were doing the seeker sensitive model you would never talk about this subject (laughs) because you don't want anybody you don't want to lose anybody so why would you talk about terminating that this sounds awful you know from a pastoral perspective but uh, we're not concerned with any of that we're just concerned with doing things biblically and uh, as I've stated before, you know, the church is not like uh, Hotel California, right? You can come anytime you like, but you can never leave, you know? No, that, that's not, that's like a cult, okay? Uh, you can leave a church, but the question is, is how do you leave a church biblically? I have seen so many times, numerous times, and I have been the victim of having to go through seeing members leave the church in an unbiblical, unruly uh, fashion and it's not good for the church it's not good for the people leaving it's not good for the pastors it's not good for the body so that's something that we we have to talk about okay and so uh starting out let me begin with this and that is the obstacles to the doctrine of church membership understand that there are such obstacles recent study uh was conducted by oh what's the guy the statistician the statistician guy barna oh, what's his name the guy that does all the polls and all that Right? He took a poll, and basically what it boiled down to is that among everyone that identifies as Christian in the, in, in the United States and in the West, about 17% of those people actually believe that church membership or something like church membership even matters when it comes to your spirituality. In other words, what the study uh, discovered is that for many Christians, they believe you can live the Christian life perfectly without church membership. Church membership is not necessary to be spiritual. You can come and go as you please. Uh, and some of those people, a big, uh, a big chunk of the percentage of those people uh, were even talking about the necessity of going to church in the first place. In other words, just do church on your own, that type of thing. I've seen a documentary once on CNN. Yeah, once in a while, I'll, I'll look at something from CNN. But <laughs> I, I saw a documentary on CNN, and it was talking about that thing, that how technology has influenced the idea of like going to church. And there's a guy, you know, he's in Huntington Beach, and he's skating around on his skateboard, you know, no shirt, you know, typical Huntington Beach guy. Right? And he says he's doing church on his iPhone. And he's in Sunday, and he's skating around, he's got his, you know, he's got his ear plugs on or his, his things on, you know, headphones on or whatever. And he says, I got church right here. I don't need to go to church. I, I mean, literally, it was like the worst thing for a pastor to see, right? 
But that tells us something about the culture in which we live. And if we think, if we think that this does not affect us, oh, it does. Oh, and here's another question. Here's another point. If we think the Reformed Church is not affected by our culture, oh, it is, let me tell you. I can tell you numerous Reformed, that is to say those families that would subscribe to the doctrines of grace, they would identify with the great confessions of the Reformed faith, they would find themselves in the Reformed tradition, they read Calvin and the Puritans and this and that, and how many times I've had some of those families at times, or those men and women, they're like oil in my hand, I can't grab a hold of them, and they have an excuse, they have a reason, and they, have, they always seem to have a circumstance or a reason that prohibits them from being members of a church. So if we think that we are exempt from that, we are not exempt from that. Uh, this matters uh, everywhere, and that's because in our culture, as you know, the idol of individualism is real. Uh, it's all about me, my personal time, my privacy, my preferences, uh, my space, right? All of that. I mean, we think about what our culture does. It conditions everything around the individual. Everything is to be catered to you on an individual level, you know? I mean, I think it's Burger King that says, have it your way, right? I mean, it's all about you. Uh, there's a magazine called Self. I mean, it, this is the culture in which we live. Now, also, I put down evangelicalism, and why, do I, why did I put down evangelicalism as an obstacle to church membership? Well, because uh, my background, some of you guys know my background is uh, I spent years in Calvary Chapel, and uh, in Southern California, I was in Calvary Chapel Church for years, and uh, they are actually, not only uh, do they not subscribe to church membership, they're anti-church membership. They actually preach against church membership under the heading of legalism. They would say that it's legalistic, it's heavy-handed, it's overbearing, and uh, uh, Chuck Smith, who was my pastor for many years, uh, he would say that all you're going to do is scare people away. And so why would, you, why would you have something that would scare people away from the church, you see? And so this is the kind of mentality that a large, broad, evangelical uh, sort of, of mentality can, can, can take us in, in that line of thinking. Also, uh, because of the rise of the seeker-sensitive movement, you guys know the story. I mean, just a low ecclesiology, come as you go, chip-and-dip Christianity, you just try one flavor at a time, you're just going from place to place. And, uh, you know, in, in Calvary Chapel, I'll give you an example, in Calvary Chapel, it was, it, it was popular and trendy in my Calvary Chapel circles to visit as many churches as possible. So you go here, Chuck Smith, and then you just drive real fast and go here, Greg Glory, and then you drive real fast over here and go listen to Raw Reese or something. <laughs> it's just crazy, you know what I mean? But you don't belong anywhere. This really came home to me right before I left the Calvary Chapel movement when uh, my, let me give you just a little story here, what happened. Our Calvary Chapel uh, was really in close proximity to Biola University and Talbot Seminary. And what happened was, is that at that seminary, many, Felix knows because he was there with me, but uh, at that seminary, uh, what happened was, is that there was a professor there by the name of John Mark Reynolds who was teaching Eastern Orthodoxy and the new perspective on Paul, okay, which is an a anti-reformed uh, understanding of the doctrine of justification. Anyway, uh, what ended up happening is that multitudes of students were converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. Did you guys hear about Hank Hanegraaff? That Bible answer? Right, he converted, you know, all that. 
I watched the video where the priest was giving Hank Hanegraaff the Holy Spirit. You know, okay, whatever, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, what ended up happening in this small Calvary Chapel church is that Eastern Orthodoxy began to blow through the congregation, and the pastors of this church were asking the members of the church like me, hey, do you know if such and such is a part of our church anymore? And so the, the pastors had no idea who was in the church anymore. They were t- trying to figure out who's in, who's out. They, no, no way to identify the people of God. No way to identify who is under their care. And that kind of gets ahead of us a little bit. But you see, these are the kinds of things uh, that, that can develop. And then I also put fear and abuse because in a lot of places, church membership is done, but it's done in an abusive fashion. So people are fearful because they've undergone spiritual abuse where the pastor controls every aspect of your life or, you know, uh, it's, there's such extreme legalism. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, just recently had a friend come and visit my wife and I and was telling us about a church that they left and, and uh, theologically it was pretty sound, but they had gone so far in their church membership, the elders demanded to see people's bank statements and they wanted to see what you were spending money on and why you weren't giving faithfully. I mean, to that degree, I'm like, what? And people stayed, you know? Uh, so th- that's the kind of, that's what I'm talking about, you know what I mean? In certain Pentecostal circles, pastors can get so out of control with the issue of membership, they literally try to control every aspect of your life. You know, and from the and even charismatic circles is it even worse because, of course, they're getting a word from the Lord about controlling your life. And so, you know, people can come from, and many of you, based on your testimonies in church membership, have told us stories like that. And uh, so that's something to understand. And also, finally, bad theology. What's the ultimate obstacle to uh, church membership? Bad theology. You simply do not understand the necessary consequence of scripture as it relates to the doctrine of church membership any other obstacles you guys can think of that i didn't mention anyone it's just like yeah he's not mentioning this yes sir what is that discipleship okay yeah sure i mean i i think that would fall under bad theology right somebody didn't teach you well enough somebody didn't disciple you in what scripture teaches regarding uh, the doctrine of church membership like myself uh for many years right I mean, being taught, you know, I got saved. I was 19 years old. I walk into a Calvary Chapel. There's Chuck Smith on stage, full white head. He looks, I thought he was like a prophet of God. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like whatever he says goes. You know what I mean? Like I don't question it. I don't, you know what I mean? If I want to be a Berean, I just ask him about it. <laughs> I don't test the scriptures. I just ask Pastor Chuck, you know? Chuck, whatever Chuck says is law. And, and, and that's my fault. He wouldn't even have wanted that. But you see, bad discipleship can certainly lead to that. Anybody else? Anything else that you can think about? Yes, sir? Dylan? An aversion to accountability. That's right. And I would think that would fall under individualism, right? Like people don't want to be accountable to one another, you know? And um, accountability and submission, right? Uh, I think one of, the, one of the most important things that really came to me once I was studying church, understanding that Jesus' entire life was a life lived under submission to someone else, accountability to the Father's will, right, and to his people and to the law and fulfilling all righteousness and all of this. And I thought, wow, you know, here is the king of the universe 
right? Here's the Lord of glory, and he comes and he lives a life of perfect, humble submission. And uh, just, just, just amazing. So, okay, so let's, let's move on. Uh, how would I define church membership? Here is a simple, succinct little answer that I, uh, I, I, uh, that I would uh, say here. A church membership is the formal identification of the Christian with the local church. That's simple enough, right? It's the formal identification of the Christian with the local church. Now, obviously, that's a very, very simple answer. But if we elucidate that more, if we, if we expound on that, formal identification is the key, right? That's the crucial term here. It reflects that in many ways in which the believer enters into a mutual relationship, a covenant, a commitment, and an accountability with the visible assembly of God's elect in the context of a true and biblical church. There you go. That's a little bit more meaty there. Okay, so, <laughs> but, but, but notice what I put down there. In the context of a true and biblical church, right? Going to a Bible study or going to a house gathering or having a Bible study at work somewhere or meeting with your family, right, that doesn't fit the pattern of biblical ecclesiology, which is in my, you know, okay, so what would be a constitute a true church? That's the question we need to ask. What constitutes a true church is a church that has elders and observes the ordinances, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, uh, uh, accurately preaches the gospel, and fulfills the mandate for church discipline. If you don't have that, those basic components of a true church, you don't have a true church. You might have a spiritual gathering. You might have a family tradition. Uh, and as I'm talking, I'm literally thinking of individuals in my mind that fall into this category, friends that my wife and I have had who've had situations like that. Well, oh, we just, we, uh, you know, some of the family gets together and we all meet and, you know, our grandfather is kind of like the patriarch and he kind of teaches us. Yeah, but where's the church? Yeah, that's not a church, you see. Um, no, and so um, the fam- uh, excuse me, the, the house church movement uh, has greatly, I think, greatly depleted the doctrine of ecclesiology, not because you can't have a true church in that meets in a house. Oh, absolutely. I think we would be staggered if we looked at the global perspective. Uh, I was talking to somebody, but I have a friend, he does missions in Yemen, which is like impossible to get into Yemen. And there is no church in Yemen that doesn't meet in a house. You can only meet in a house, you see? So it's not that you can't have a house church. Oh, you most certainly can. Most of the New Testament churches were in, in, in a house church, okay? I would say for, for, for uh, practical or pragmatic reasons. It wasn't that they had a doctrine, let's meet in a house, or it wasn't they had a mandate to meet in a house. It was because they had necessity that they had to meet in a house because in the early church, the early church was loathed and persecuted. It wasn't like there was a building like Water's Edge available at every corner, okay? They were mainly in hiding. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. He's got to be let out of a window running from his persecutors, you see? So that, that, that is something. Uh, anybody want to add to the definition here or expound on it or, or bring up something or a question that you may have? You sure? Uh, I won't be offended if you don't like my definition, as long as you can give me a better one. No, we'll pass that around a microphone if we have to. No. <laughs> but I think that's right. It's, it's accountability with a visible assembly of God's people, God's elect, in the context of a true and biblical church. 
I uh, just recently did something with Mike Winger. You guys remember? And Mike Winger uh, comes from a certain uh, Calvary Chapel, and he starts telling me that he really, um, uh, he really uh, resents the fact that his church doesn't practice church discipline. Wow. And so I told him, you know, uh, Mike, I said, um, it's my position that you don't have a true church if you don't practice church discipline. And he goes, so are you saying I don't go to a true church? Next question, please. <laughs> he was really mad at me. But, but I'm just saying, like, you know, I'm like, bro, you said it yourself. You're frustrated with your own elders. And he's one of the pastors. Anyway, this is really, really uh, happening out there. Okay, what are the biblical arguments for church membership? What are some of the, because see, I was thinking, you're going to meet people all the time that don't believe in church membership, that question church membership, that have a low view of church membership, that see no imperative, they see no urgency, they see this is not important in the category of important things in the Christian life. This is way down the list. It's not a priority like it should be. Well, uh, these are some of the arguments I would say is that God has always had uh, a way to number his people. This goes back to the tribes of Israel, either. They would keep, in the tribes of Israel, they would keep meticulous lists of the families and the children and everybody in the family. They don't, don't get all Presbyterian on me either, okay? I'm just saying. I'm just telling you the truth. They had lists down to the last child. They had a number of who was in, who was identified in the covenant community. Okay, that was always something found throughout. Also, Jesus, remarkably, numbered his disciples. He had the 70 that he identified, and he had the 12, you see. And so God always has some sort of formal count of his people. Uh, uh, is, there's not one verse that I would say that verse says this is church membership and this is how you do it. No, it's a cumulative case. It's what uh, theologians would call the necessary consequence of Scripture. Taken comprehensively, you have to have something like what we call church membership. Okay? Also, the apostles kept the number of those who were added to the church. And so you have to be formally, numerically added to the church. And this is something that we suspect kept going on in the book of Acts. Paul speaks of a role, the word, the Greek word there literally just means a list, of widows within the church. And furthermore, the book of Hebrews speaks of a role of the whole church in heaven. And so if there is a church role in heaven, there should be a church role on earth. In other words, these are basically uh, some of the arguments that I would give. Anybody want to add to that or ask questions, please feel free. Sunday school hour, that's what it's for, is for you to raise your hand. There's no silly questions. Um, yes, sir? Not knowing who the elect is? Oh, I think that might be... I think that might be a different matter. You know, Jesus there in John, he, the question is like when Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 8, that the new birth is like the wind that blows. You don't know where it comes from, where it's going, but you see the effect of it, right? 
Uh, and in that sense, like election is a mystery. I would say that what he's, his emphasis there is that regeneration is a mystery, right? Um, election is a mystery in an ultimate sense, right? We don't have a discernment that is ultimate or infallible when it comes to election, but we do have a practical knowledge of that. And you see that in First um, Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks that he has confidence of the election of the, of the people in the church. And I think that's general, right? And that's the way that, like I would say, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus right now today, and if I know you, you know, I have a certain confidence in your election, right? Based on your fruit, based on your life, based on your testimony. Of course, it's not healthy for us to go around doubting each other's election, okay? That's not, certainly not what we're supposed to do. But there's a difference between an infallible knowledge of one's election and a practical knowledge of one's election. Only ultimately God knows the heart. Now, uh, just some other arguments. Ready? These are the ones you've heard me say even from uh, the stage when we introduce new members I often bring this up as a necessary consequence of Scripture. This is why church membership is so important. Number one, elders have to have the ability to identify the members of the church. So they're members, typo, sorry. But elders have to be able to identify their members. Numerous passages on this. 1 Peter chapter 5 is a good place to look at where uh, there a Peter given the commission and telling the elders to shepherd the flock of God. But if you don't know who's in your flock, go back to my example earlier, what happened to me back then. A pastor doesn't even know who's in and who's out. How do you shepherd someone if you don't know if they're in or out? It's very simple. Also, uh, members being able to identify their elders. And so when someone begins to quibble with me about the issue of church membership, you know what one of my very first questions is? Who is your elder? Who is your pastor? Right? Because, according to Scripture, you must be able to submit to your pastors. So how can you do that if you don't have a pastor? And you can't formally identify your pastor. You see that? Then I would say, well, you know, I go to this one church and this one guy. I had a person tell me this. I go to this one church and this one pastor, he's really cool. Oh, yeah, what's his name? Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. You don't know the name of your pastor? (laughs) <laughs> you're trying to persuade me that you understand ecclesiology? Um, that's, that's sort of what we, we're facing nowadays. Members also have to have the ability to identify fellow members. Doesn't this help? Because if you're in a, in a church like ours or any church, and you see people coming and visiting or staying for a while and you know things like that, you kind of, you know, your heart is to love one another, right? I mean, just read First John. I mean, First John is saying, look, lay down your life for one another, okay? Uh, love one another. Matter of fact, First John says, look, by your love for one another, that in a sense becomes a litmus test of your love of God. There's a direct analogous relationship between how you actually love God, and, you know, seen and how you actually love one another. Wow, very profound. But if you don't know who you are, in, you are obligated to love because biblical love, um, you know, entails a, a high level of accountability. It, it, it means that you fulfill the one another's of Scripture to one, you know, to one another. Sorry to sound redundant, 
But the Bible, just go in the Bible where it says one another, one another, one another, one another. That is not spoken outside of the concept of church membership. It just isn't. Uh, it's not just for any Christian anywhere whatsoever. Uh, you ever felt like that? I mean, you guys can testify to this. When you know a Christian in some place or somewhere, and oh, man, in our connected Facebook age, you know Christians everywhere, right? And it's difficult for you to try to really keep them accountable, right? You see a bad picture on Facebook or you hear of a brother kind of getting weird or kind of doing stuff, you know, doctrinally or morally or something's going on in their lives and you just feel like, is it really my place to go there and pursue that person or maybe even people in your family that are not part of your church that are kind of, you know, out of state or something like that? It's a, you have a hard time keeping them accountable, and I would say you really don't have an obligation to keep them accountable in the sense that the Bible says in terms of ecclesiology. You know why? Because in the Bible, true biblical accountability is ecclesiastical accountability. There's a hierarchy to accountability in the Bible. It begins with you as the body of Christ. If something goes wrong, if there is sin, if there is an offense, guess what? You take another brother or sister with you. You confront that person. You get accountable in that way. If that doesn't work, what's the next step? You take it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, then the church has an obligation to put them out of the church. You see how even there in Matthew, what is that? Matthew 18, right? Matthew chapter 18, right? Beginning in verse 16 and following, uh, Jesus is talking there about church discipline. He only conceives of the Christian life in connection with the church. Doesn't conceive of it in any other way. So you got to be able to know pastors who the members are, members who your pastors are, because in Hebrews 13, 17, we are obligated to submit to our leaders and also who members are among each other. You need to know, oh, look at that verse. Are you guys there? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that last verse there, chapter 12, verse 25. That's a good one because there, what does he say here? It's kind of like the verse I started out with, but he says, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see that there? So now you know that Paul here is thinking local church level because I can't care for everybody in the invisible church. And so in the visible local church, this is the obligation that you care for one another. But if there is no formal way of identifying for whom you must care, uh, it will complicate that very, very much. Don't get me wrong. Let me qualify that by saying anyone that walks into our church, we have a Christian obligation to love them and care for them and bless them and, 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 and do what we can for them, you know what I mean? Uh, as much as possible, it should be our heart to overextend ourselves for somebody. Uh, as long as they are professing faith in Christ, uh, caring for them in this biblical spiritual sense, okay? But there is just a special care that comes when you know these are the people that I have committed to be in a formal uh, a body with, in uh, a formal accountability with, and uh, they, 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 they carry a very special place uh, in my life in terms of ministry. Okay, so also the pastoral dimensions of this. I mentioned this a little bit, but any biblical pastor desires to have a true, desires to have a true church and a pure church. This desire, however, cannot be fully realized without church membership. That's absolutely right. Just 
think of it from our perspective as pastors. If we don't know who is truly committed here, it makes it very difficult to hold members accountable to the obligations that the Bible calls us to, to the commands of Scripture, to the imperatives of the New Testament, to all of these commands, okay? Submit to your elders, care for one another, the one another's of Scripture, financial support for the church, church discipline, the sacraments. All of these things get very complicated if we don't have some sort of formal identification between you know, a shepherd and sheep. Does that make sense? Anybody have a question about that? Comment, statement? No wrong comment, no wrong statement. Well, maybe, unless you get up and say there's no such thing as church membership. <laughs> yes, sir. Jeff. Good question. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, that leads me to another question. Uh, how long should somebody visit a church before they join the church? Uh, I mean, I don't know how long. I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, you got to be balanced there. I would say on the one hand, take your time. If you're going to, this is a huge decision. To join a church is a huge decision, Right. Um, take your time. Don't be rushed or pressured into it, right? Uh, and so that could take, you know, a month or two. Uh, but I think if you're going three, four months, you're still not joining that church. You need to ask yourself why. Are there objective reasons why you're not doing that or subjective reasons? Meaning you're just kind of like, oh, I just don't know if this is something I want to do, you know. That's not a good reason. Uh, that's not uh, thinking clearly and biblically. So I would say it leads to like the whole question of what are the criteria for joining a church, right? And I, and I certainly have that here. But uh, uh, the other thing is this, and Pastor Lynn and I, Brian, we've been talking about this, that uh, for, for long-time visitors, long-time attenders, uh, our, our, our church policy is getting ready to change slightly in that you can come and visit and you can, you can be among us and all of that for a time, but there will come a time in which if you do not join the church, right, the elders will have to approach you and at least let you know, hey, look, even though you've not decided to formally identify with us through the process of membership, because you're here, because you do influence this body, we are now going to hold you accountable at least to church discipline. So if we see that you are living in sin or something like that, we will now, whether you like it or not, we will now go through with the steps of church discipline uh, for the sake of the purity of the local church. And I think, that, uh, I think that is the right thing to do. I don't think it's okay to just let people linger around the church, visit the church, influence the church, fellowship with the, the families of the church. And if they are not walking in an orderly fashion, like the Bible says, you know, mark those that walk disorderly. And that's really serious, you know. And then furthermore, church discipline. If you end up, you know, if you end up walking in sin, in penitent sin, and as elders, though you're not a member, I still think we're obligated to, to deal with that. You see what I'm saying? So there, there again, you know, it's kind of one of those, that's why church membership matters. 
Because <laughs> you're not supposed to exist in that transitionary stage for very long. That's not God's will for you to, to kind of be in limbo. That, that certainly is not the will of God for his people, I do not believe. Uh, any other questions? Because those, 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 see, those are the nitty-gritty, Jeff, of what, that's why I wanted to do this study, you know, just to get to the nitty-gritty questions of, hey, what about this, you know what I mean? Uh, furthermore, when you join our church, one of the things that the elders will tell you is that, you know, uh, we are prepared to guard the flock. And so we're very meticulous about who comes into the church, right? We don't just let you into the church. I mean, there are people who hate me to death because I said no in terms of their church membership because they didn't have a credible testimony. Uh, they, they weren't actually saved. And they thought they can do here what they've done at all these seeker-sensitive type church, you know, where they don't really care if you're saved or not. As long as you sign the car, as long as you tithe, as long as you attend and, you know, participate and serve in the parking lot or something like that. You know, you can be a member of that church. Not here, you know. So, uh, so you know, uh, part of the, the, the whole concept of church membership is that the shepherds are committed to protecting the flock, guarding the purity of the, of the fellowship of the church, you see. So, uh, yeah. So any, any other questions before I move on? Sure. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yes, and 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 it also stresses the the question: if that's true, who is God going to hold me accountable for in terms of? Hey, you were accountable for these souls, you know. The question is, who is that going to be? Think about it. So this is where the logic of non-membership positions runs out because it's like, you think God is not going to hold me accountable for every visitor that came through here. You see what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not obligated to shepherd them in the same, to the same degree, right? But no, uh, who was it? Uh, I told you this before. It was Jonathan Edwards. When Jonathan Edwards' church kicked him out of the church for his position on the Lord's Supper because it went against the tradition of his grandfather's, uh, Jonathan, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, Stoddard, he said, um, he said, you know, to his church in his parting sermon, he says, this is a temporary parting between us. We will reunite again as the church of God in heaven. We will stand before the shepherd of the sheep, <laughs> you know, the great shepherd of the sheep. Wow, you know, just remarkable to see, like, yes, you know, when we stand before the great judgment seat of Christ, the great assize, the final judgment, the pastors have to give an account for who and why and what in terms of their shepherding, you know, their overseeing. So it's, uh, don't you want to be a pastor? <laughs> That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses uh, 14 through 16, he talks about be careful how you build in the kingdom, right? Wood, hay, and stubble, that kind of ministry, it's going to burn. Precious stones, gold, silver, that's going to last. So be careful how you execute the ministry of the gospel in the church. You see? Um, any questions? Anything? Uh, if you have questions that you're struggling with in terms of like, I'm kind of struggling with this, and you don't want to say it out here, feel free to approach us in private. That's fine as well. I understand. 
obstacles to efficient pastoral ministry. Yeah, this is just kind of getting to my previous point, right? From the pastoral dimension, it complicates discipleship, what Mike was talking about. It complicates the issue of church discipline. I've actually been in a church discipline church, in a church discipline setting, in a meeting in a church where they were actually doing church discipline, God bless them for that, in a non-membership setting. And you know what happened there? (laughs) People that hadn't been to that church in three years were coming through the doors and wanting to sit in on the meeting just to hear what the scoop and what the drama is all about. You think that's honoring to the Lord? I don't think so. And some of those people stood up in the meeting and spoke. Uh, Dastardly. I mean, unbelievable. You know, talk about complicating church discipline. Yeah, it can make a mockery out of it. And so it makes it difficult to follow through. It makes it complicates ministry. Uh, I've had people come to this church. They're not members of the church. They have certain talents. They come in and they tell me, do you mind if I start serving over here? Like, let's say, with technology or sound. I'm like, uh, yeah, I do mind, actually. <laughs> you know, you kind of be a member of our church before you start serving that way, you know, uh, and stuff like that. Most churches, tell me if you agree, most churches, you can play a guitar or play the drums or do something. Oh, pff, get up, let's go, right? Just, <laughs> you know, make, make it happen, right? As long as you've got the talent, you should be able to do it. Very uncritical approach to that, and that's why, you know, uh, it's, you know, the, 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 you know, whether a church is a true church is one matter, whether it fits the qualifications of that, and then whether it's a pure church, where is it at on the scale of purity? Every church is on a scale of purity. There are less pure sort of governments and ministry models, and there are more pure. So we want to be striving towards ministerial purity. Also complicates the issue of counseling. Uh, think about this. You're a member of our church. I'm obligated to, to, as a pastor to engage in biblical counseling. But if I'm constantly busy counseling people who are not even members here to the neglect of my members, uh, that's, not, that's not healthy. That's not sound. That's not wise. That's not good. Um, complicates finances. How can I obligate somebody that's visiting our church to financially give toward our local church if you haven't made any sort of formal commitment to the church and the pastors have not made any formal commitment to you? Uh, it just lacks the efficacy, the potency for that. It complicates mercy ministry in the church. Who are you supposed to take care of? Look, the beauty of our church right now is that when someone is ill or something happens, or I love when ladies in the church just, no one even tells them to do it. They just, hey, all right, let's go. Let's, let's start, you know, let's get a list going. Let's start providing food and taking care of needs and praise God. That's great. That's biblical. That's right out of the abundance of their heart, just volunteering that for the greater good of the body. But if we're to do that for every person here that's not a member, um, that would make it, that would, that would stretch us beyond what, what we're even obligated to do. So uh, I see my time. I've got 15 minutes. What is required in church membership? Nothing. <laughs> you see that? <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> that's because I'm done. <laughs> So uh, any other questions, though, about that, that that's going to take us, the requirements of church membership is going to take us in a whole different direction. Let me just say this, that church membership is a glorious, wonderful, beautiful thing. It is also sobering. It's also terrifying because we're accountable and we're going to be held accountable. 
You see what I'm saying? And so that's why I believe that when you actually join a local church, there's a sanctification that happens there. I think that's, there's a means of grace that happens there. There's, you kind of mature in your Christian life a little bit because you're, you know you are putting yourself in the place where you can be held accountable now to degrees and in ways that you hadn't before. So um, can you guys think of any other benefits of church, discipline or church uh, uh, membership that I didn't mention that you may want to share with us? Anybody? Anything else that I didn't mention? I know I didn't get everything. Any other questions, maybe not directly related to this, but in the all overall rubric of church membership, any other questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. The question is, what about church size? Size of the church grows so big. How do the elders, you know, biblically, how does church membership work well if it's such a huge church, right? Yeah, and I think, I, think that, um, I think that a sign that the church is growing, right, to that extent, right, hopefully is an indication that people are being shepherded and therefore it's growing, but maybe not. Uh, I actually talked to Phil Johnson about what Grace does. And Grace Community, I think they have about 27 elders or something like that. And everyone in the church is assigned an overseeing elder, so you're no one in all of MacArthur's church, which I don't know how many members they have. It's in the many thousands now. It's got to be maybe 6,000 people, 8,000 people, right? But it doesn't matter. Every single one of them is uh, mandatory that you, uh, that you are uh, assigned to an elder that oversees and regularly checks in with those families and what's going on. And, uh, and I think also, m- like, kind of mandatory, you're assigned a small uh, a Sunday school group that you have to be a part of and things like that. So, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, every indication that I've uh, talked to people there. So it could be that it can work. Um, if the church is growing to the degree that people are being neglected and shepherding is not happening, then maybe that particular church needs to think about doing something with those people, sending them to a different church or something like that. So my basic philosophy has always been that wherever God guides, he provides. You know, if God is going to grow our church to a certain number, he's going to provide the leadership, hopefully, to take care of those people. But uh, certainly, uh, that's a mutual thing. That's where families need to determine for themselves, am I really being meaningfully shepherded here, or am I being neglected, right? Right? I mean, there can be reasons for that, like you avoid fellowship or you avoid contact with people or you're just avoiding the church. That's your fault, you know what I mean? Or is it really that the elders are so stretched they have no time for anybody, you know what I mean? And that can certainly be a problem. So uh, good question. I don't know that I have the definitive answer on that. <laughs> Any other questions? About that? No? Sure. Yes, sir. Mario. Or the church role, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, same as church membership. You're just, you're on the list, the formal list of the church. 
It's really wonderful because we create a church directory. When we send out emails, we know exactly who we're emailing, right, and stuff like that. We make announcements to the church. And so a church directory, a church role, very important, very helpful, right? It makes it very, very easy to be efficient in many ways. And so, yeah, that's basically it. And so, um, yeah, a lot more to come. Requirements, benefits, uh, all of those kinds of things as far as church membership. We're at a time. Let me pray for us and we'll... We'll take a little break. Father, thank you again for uh, the doctrine of the church, Lord. We thank you even for these practical issues that we're talking about, the, the, the things that, 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 that uh, truly, truly matter in our day-to-day lives uh, is how we look at church membership like this, these kinds of issues. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us uh, just to, uh, again, have a, a better understanding and a better commitment to the true, dro- the, two, the true doctrine of the church on the one hand, but also, Lord, to church membership uh, and all that that entails for us on the other hand, Lord, and that our heart would be above everything to bless the church, to love the church, bearing in mind what the Scripture says there in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that God died for the church. And so, Lord, help us to have that same estimation and that same view of just how precious the church is in your sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And let's take a quick break.